I have one announcement for you, and that is if you are coming to the gospel class today, it starts at 1 p.m. If you don't know what the gospel class is and you are new, the gospel class is an eight-week course that we do at Element periodically throughout the year. It goes over basic Christian theology, and then also what we as Element believe as a church, God has called us in our vision, what our mission is. And so we want you to understand what we believe. It's the precursor to membership. If you want to be a member here, you need to go through the class, because we do not want anybody to be down the road a couple of years and be like, I didn't know Element believe stuff like that. So everything is laid out. You get to ask any questions you want. And, and I know the big game is today, and some of you, again, are really excited about those commercials. So I'm planning to be done by, by 2 p.m., and that's including some questions. And, again, I haven't, I haven't taught uh, many of the gospel classes in the last couple of years. So in my mind, I envision myself being done by that time. But I am a talker, okay? So we'll see how that goes. You know, preachers like to preach. Or not. All right. If you're new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. It's funny. My gospel community, this a uh, couple weeks ago, this guy in my gospel community goes, and he just rattles off this litany of what I say. And I'm like, you could totally do that for me. He's like, no, I don't get in front of people. And I'm like, but it was perfect. It's like I just... So if you are new, there are Bibles and seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room, but right now they're not two sermon notes. They're these booklets, which we'd love for all of you to have. In these booklets, it's called Didn't See That Coming. It's the 16-week series that we're going through right now. The entire staff got together. We put these books together for you. There are short, short, short daily devotions to get you in the habit of doing devotions daily if you aren't already doing that. There are community discussion questions. There are family questions written to different age groups groups, and hopefully you will all come together and do that as we go through this series together to help us better understand the gospel. So that is your sermon notes. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version. Click on More, and then Events in Version. We welcome up by GPS in your smartphone, but the sermon notes you're going to get is simply a link to the booklet, the verses we go through, and some announcements. That's essentially about all you're going to get in there today. Uh, so welcome to Elma. My name is Aaron, one of the pastors here. I want you to stand with me for reading to God's Word. We will get started. Uh, this is Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that we would be a people who understand what deliverance means and how you have come to rescue and save us. And not just that, you have then called us and set us upon your mission in this world to go out and to be able to speak that good news of what you have done for us into others' lives so that the good news of who you are would spread to the entire earth. So teach us to live that out. Amen. All right, have a seat. We are in our fifth week of that uh, booklet, that journey to understand the word gospel. Again, we're calling it Didn't See That Coming. This is understanding the gospel in the historical narrative as found in the scriptures. Sometimes when people hear the word the gospel, they think it sounds very religious, and it's not. Sometimes when people hear the word gospel, they think Jesus Christ, superstar, or something like that. Superstar. Something like that. Uh, The word gospel, it simply means good news, the heralding of good news about an event. And so when we speak about it in Christianity, it is the good news that spans all of human history about the rescue and redemption of lost and broken people in the person of Jesus. Now, so far, we have blazed a trail through most of the book of Genesis over the last four weeks. Uh, I was talking to Michelle, who was leading music this morning, and she said, said, yeah, there's a lot of information, and I feel like I'm getting lost sometimes. So I'm going to slow down today a little bit. Uh, We are going to go 
out of Genesis and head into Exodus, but we're going to kind of sit in an area for a while of the verse that we started with about God rescuing and redeeming people. Each week, we're trying to give you a gospel-centered statement that helps you to understand what is happening each and every week in the course of the message, how to relate that in words. And so last week, we said this, the gospel is the good news that God has remembered us in our lost state and has come to redeem, rename, and restore us from our brokenness to be in renewed life-giving relationships with Him and others. Today, instead of waiting till the end, I'm going to give you the statement up front because I want you to have the trajectory of where we are going. So this is today's. The gospel is the good news that God has established His kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we, as restored citizens, live in a present and tangible way that helps bring this kingdom to earth. I am going to have you repeat it, but that'll be at the end, hopefully, when we understand what's going on. Sometimes these statements can be a mouthful, but hopefully, again, by the end, you'll understand where we're going with this. I'm going to jump around a little bit today. If you want to, you can open your Bibles at Genesis chapter 3 to start. Central to understanding uh, the Exodus story and what God is doing is the verse we started with where God says, I have heard the cry. But to understand that cry, you have to start where we started with and didn't see that coming all the way back in the book of Genesis. It's a progression. The gospel is a story of what God is doing throughout the scriptures. So we've got to start where the scriptures start, understanding this idea of redemption. And I know we covered this over the last few weeks, but since maybe I went through it so fast... Hopefully, I'll give you a little refresher in this to understand the idea of sin and God's rescue of us. Uh, in the garden, God creates everything good. He creates everything in this thing called shalom, which is peace with him and others and harmony and everything around us. That is the peace and the goodness of God. God gives mankind one thing they're not supposed to do, and mankind does that one thing. Because we are all like that. We still do that today. Whatever God says not to do, we're like, you don't tell me what to do. I'll go do that. And then we do that, and then we totally mess up our lives because we're just like people in the garden. So after Adam and Eve sinned, they run away from God. This is what we read, Genesis 3, 8 through 11. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? So these four verses kind of give you the idea of what life is like before sin entered the world. We have an intimacy with God. We can walk with him like we're walking in the park. This is a closeness. Scripture again calls this shalom. That true shalom has never been my experience or your experience because we live in a place after the fall because as soon as sin entered the world they hid themselves from God. Just like we tend to do even when we're trying to be open before God we tend to always hide ourselves. The picture in this becomes moral guilt. We hide out of fear because we have violated God's image in us. God asks Adam, who told you you were naked? So, I mean, Adam, he's like, I'm sure God didn't want to see all this after he falls. He's like, I'm going to go and hide over here. And God says, why are you hiding? He's like, well, I'm naked. Adam, in his mind, probably thinks, this is a great excuse, right? I I sinned. God's not going to know I sinned. I'm just going to hide from him. Who told you you were, who told Adam he was naked? Adam. Adam told Adam he was naked. And what you see, and now rather than trusting God for what God says and God's goodness, now it's us telling ourselves what is the good. And when we tell ourselves what is the good, it's usually the evil instead. And we now feel guilt for violating God and shame for violating his image in us. When we sin against God, we further distort the image he made us in. And so we distort his image in us. And this in the scriptures is where you have the beginning of what we call the divided self. We are trying to be something on the outside that is different than who we truly are on the inside. And if you're honest about that, we all 
do it. Every day we have this struggle because we want people to think we're something that we are not and we hide on the inside. Martin Luther gave a definition of sin as this. He calls it homo, homo inse incurvatus. And what that means is man curved in upon himself. That's sin. That's, it's pride. It's always focusing on us. It's choosing ourselves above God. And it means that sometimes we do, yes, bad things, but even when we do good things, even when we do those, many times it's curved towards ourselves, like when we help the poor in our friendships or study the Bible. You study the Bible long enough, you start to wonder why people don't study the Bible like you and they're not as spiritual as you. What's wrong with those people? You're reading a book that's supposed to teach you humbleness and reaching out with the gospel, but how come those other people are such knuckleheads, not like you, because... We start to do this. Uh, prayer. Uh, we actually got a prayer request to uh, our email this week where somebody asked us to pray for peace and that they have no problems in their life whatsoever. And I think, well, I know, we all pray that, okay? So don't laugh at this guy because we all do that. But, but it's this idea that God needs to give me what I need and what I want rather than trusting God for what he wants to bring into our lives. Even when we pray, even when we do good, we tend to curve it in towards ourselves, and that's because of sin. Sin determines that how we relate to God and each other always kind of comes through this thing called sin, and we want to always further our own agenda. And so this in the scriptures is where humanity fell, and it just keeps getting worse as we keep lying. Didn't see that coming. But God asked Adam, did you sin? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And what does Adam say? No, but she did. That he throws his wife under the bus. It's like, and she's the woman's actually really honest in the Genesis account. She's like, yes, this is what happened. The serpent said this, and I ate it. And Adam's like, great, you just threw me back under the bus. But this is kind of what happens to human relationships ever since. Like husband and wives, you always have this fight because we're not trying to worship God as one flesh. We're always trying to further our own agenda. That's marriage in the rest of the course of human history. Thank you, first parents. We really appreciate that. That's horrible. It's just we keep doing these things. And so we're always trying to push our own agenda. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 4, you move a little bit further from this. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 5. says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of, of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So Adam and Eve, they have these two kids. Uh, they're probably twins, Cain being the firstborn. These kids, they go to worship God. Cain brings his leftovers to God, like what's left after I you know, buy my fourth pair of shoes and I, and I go here and buy that fast food. What do I have left? Okay, I'll give that to God. But Abel comes and he brings his best to something special. It calls it his fat portions. It's an amazing act of love and worship. Abel is essentially saying, I want the intimacy with you, God, that my parents used to have. That's what he's saying. But Cain's different. In 1 John 3.12, it says Cain had jealousy in his heart when he came before God. In Hebrews 11, it says Cain comes with unbelief. See, Cain worships God by comparing himself to other people. In this case, Abel. Like, we would never do anything like that. Right? Okay. So this is Cain, though. His sin's not in his hands at this point. His sin is in his heart. He is jealous of Abel. Cain and Abel bring their offerings. Cain looks over at Abel and he says, Oh my goodness, he's going to out-worship me. He's going to out-offer me. He's going to out-serve me. And that's Cain's problem. He looks around and becomes jealous of what everyone else has around him. Cain, Cain comes with his eyes on Abel and not upon God. And the eventual result of this is going to be sin. Because Cain's solution to this dilemma of Abel out-worshipping him is not to truly worship God in his own heart himself. It's to kill Abel so nobody can worship God better than Cain. 
sin, okay? That, that's sin if, if you don't know. And you see this progression of now what sin does, okay? Sin in the human heart, it enters. And we have guilt. And that guilt makes us want to run and hide. And then we start to live in shame. And that shame sits over us. And that shame kind of becomes our identity. And from shame, we go to blame, whether it's at us or the people or God himself. And from that blame, we go to depression. Cain's face fell. From depression, it goes to anger. I can't believe this happened. I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe God did this. And we get angry. And from there, it goes to violence, whether it's against ourselves or others. And from there, it goes to murder, whether we're trying to tear down and destroy somebody else or here, in this case, actual murder. Sin grows and moves from the personal to the public. It never just stays here. It always goes out and affects things around us. It goes from the moral to the ethical. Go up to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, you see this escalation of this. We get to Genesis 11, verse 4. This is what we read. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. This name for ourselves, this is pride. This is a man curved in upon himself. It's not making a name great for who God is. It's for themselves. And this verse comes in the middle of what is known as the Tower of Babel. God tells his people, I want you to disperse over the whole earth. Make a God-honoring culture wherever you go. Move things forward. It's going to be amazing. And they say, no, we're not going to do what God said. And this isn't one person. This is now the entire society. It is now an entire culture that is opposed to the way of God. And they say, we don't want to do what God said as an entire culture. We know better than him. Didn't see that coming. I'm glad that we don't do that today. Yeah. Okay. So here you see that sin is moving out to the social and the structural. And so God comes down and he scatters these people all over the world himself. And now you have global separation, alienation because of man's sin. Man no longer can speak the same language. This is the nature and the progression of sin. Sin always moves from an individual outward into the society. In this case, from the garden to the globe. Sin moves from the personal in our lives out into a kingdom around us that wants to defy God. And we as a people today now live in the midst of a culture that is our own sin and other sin. And sometimes it's really hard to see how sin grows and makes this progression because we're stuck in the middle of it. And how sin wants to make its own kingdom in our lives. Now from here you get to what we talked about last week with Abraham. Uh, God remembering him and calling him and loving him and making promises to save him and those who believe in Jesus. God promises that his own son would come and pay for the penalty for human sin. That whatever separate us from God and us from one another that Jesus would take care on the cross. God changes Abraham's name from Abram, meaning your father is exalted, to Abraham, which is father of a multitude. Eventually, Abraham will have a son called Isaac. Isaac will have a son called Jacob, and God will draw Jacob to himself as Jacob keeps trying to run away from God. And after years of running, doing his own thing, he finally surrenders who he is. And God, at that point, will change Jacob's name like he changed Abraham's. He'll change Jacob from Jacob to Israel. And now he becomes the name of a nation. Now, Jacob, Israel, ends up with four wives. That is three too many, in case you were wondering. Uh, he, has, he has 13 kids. Only two of those kids are from the wife he really wanted to marry in the first place. These two boys are named Joseph and Benjamin. But it's really like a modern family. You've got half-brothers and step-brothers and family fighting and in-laws and outlaws, you know, just all, all together. Now, God eventually blesses Joseph, and he reveals some stuff to him. But Joseph is like a snot-nosed teenager, because as soon as he hears about it, he goes to his brothers and says, God told me you're all going to bow down to me. Isn't that awesome? 
And, it, and now the brothers are already jealous because Joseph is their dad's favorite. And they're like, no, that's not awesome. So what they do is they decide we're going to kill Joseph next time we have him out in the field. And then when they get him out in the field, they're like, no, 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 wait, wait. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. We can make some money off this and somebody else will kill him. That's great. So they sell him into slavery. They take this robe he is wearing, dip it in animal's blood, give it back to their dad and say, oh, an animal killed your favorite son, Joseph. Sorry. And that's kind of where... Now, Joseph, as a slave, he, he's working in this house. He's working hard. He's working well. His boss's, his boss wife, uh, his boss's wife wants him, like in a, in a New York housewives kind of way, like one of those shows. Like, she, she wants to have sex with him. And Joseph says, no. And she says, you can't say no. I own you. And he's like, but I just did. So I said, no. And she says, well, there you go. And she just claims rape. She says, well, you tried to rape me. And he goes to jail on a false rape charge. He tried to do the right thing. And what does he do? Go to jail on a false rape charge. Now, how many of us get angry at God when we think, I'm trying to do the right thing here? How dare you let this horrible thing happen in my life? He will spend his 20s in prison. Arguably, from my perspective, the best years of your life. <laughs> or not, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, his 20s in prison. God, how could you? And it's not something anybody would have seen coming. But we do the exact same thing when God has hardship come into our lives. In the midst of this hardship, you see, you see Joseph just grow into this man of God, which is simply amazing. And you see, again, through hardship, God tends to grow his people. So while in prison... In, uh, in Egypt, there's this ruler named Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has this dream that only a Christian can interpret and go figure. Joseph's the only one. And this dream involves seven good-looking cows and seven skinny, gaunt, supermodel-looking cows. Okay, uh, And this is about feast and famine. Uh, you're going to have seven years of feasting, seven years of famine. And so what Joseph does is he says, this is what's going to happen, and here's the plan. This is what you should do. And so Joseph rises to be the second most powerful man in this country of Egypt. And so when seven years of the feasting goes by, the famine hits. And the famine is so widespread that it hits Jacob, Israel, and his family. So they're starving and they're hungry. So he takes his sons and he sends them to Egypt to go buy some grain and get some food. They show up. Joseph sees them. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Why? Because he looks like an Egyptian. He speaks like an Egyptian. He's even talking to them through an interpreter, so they don't, see, they don't know it's actually him. And what Joseph starts to do is he tests them. He wants to see, have you really changed? And over the course of time, eventually he reveals himself. He brings his whole family down to Egypt, and they survive. But even at the end of Joseph's life, as he's laying on his deathbed, his brothers are afraid that at some point Joseph is still going to retaliate against them for what they did. And you see Joseph utter these words about God's sovereignty and his grace and his goodness. It's like nothing else in the scriptures. Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He said, you sinned, but God still brought good out of it. And I think in Joseph's life, you'll see that as Christians, we're supposed to forgive and love very quickly, but you can take some time in order to trust somebody. If somebody has hurt you, don't let them right back into your life. Forgive them, love them, but it can take some time before they ever come back into your life, if it ever happens. And Genesis, you think, might end on a, on a good note, but Joseph dies. And there's all kinds of sin in the book as it keeps going forward. So when you hit Exodus, you can flip to Exodus 1, the next uh, book of the Bible. It's a picture of how far sin has gone. In Genesis, God is calling his people and giving promises. I want you to be a blessing to the world around you. And yet, 400 years later, when the book of Exodus starts after Genesis, it's not a picture of God's kingdom. It's a picture of the exact opposite. And you see there's sin on all kinds of people's parts here because instead of going into Egyptian society and explaining who God is and what he has done and being a blessing to those around them, they huddled up. 
And they stayed in their own little community. Kind of like churches today who are like, let's leave those bad people to burn. We'll get together with people who are just like us. It'll be great. And then the rest of the world can go to hell, but we're going to be okay. No. God calls us to be a blessing in the world. We're supposed to go out. The Israelites in Egypt huddled up. They didn't spread the good news and be a blessing around them. On the other side, the Egyptians also distrust the Israelites. They do not like them. have all these prejudices that they lay upon them. And so this comes out again because of the sin of both of these people. In Exodus 1, you see how sin starts to stretch further and wider than we can imagine. The Exodus story wants you to see the Israelites now, in the place where they are, are not just dealing with one person against another. They are at the mercy of a giant system. Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Go down to verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful. It means they had lots of babies and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, Now there arose a new king, or you could say a new kingdom, over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 11, So they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The NIV translates like this, They set slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Let me give you the idea in our own vernacular. They turned them into slaves to build bigger storehouses for themselves so they could become wealthier. That's what happens. How's that for the opposite of God's call to humanity? Right? Didn't see that coming. They are slaves to a system that exploits them for self-centered gains. Exodus opens, and you have this group of people, the Hebrews, enslaved to an entire system of slavery, something that is against the way of the kingdom of God. And so it's no longer one person on another. It's a whole system against a people. And Egypt becomes this metaphor that is used, that when sin builds itself a head of steam, it becomes this thing like Egypt. It's systemic evil. Many people see the central idea of the slaves crying out to God in these verses as the idea of who the Jewish people later became. And for us, as believers in Jesus, it's a picture of our own redemption and salvation. Now, flip over to Exodus chapter 3. Here a guy named Moses shows up. Moses is a guy. He's got a sordid past full of murder and court politics. And God comes to him when he thinks his life is over. He's out watching, you know, he's a shepherd out in the field and my life is just done. Kind of like when God comes to us, right? We think our life, I'm just done. And God's like, yes, now I can use you. Now I can use you. You're not all about yourself anymore. Moses thinks his life's done. So God shows up and he's going to use him. Uh, Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, this is to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is the key passage here here in Israelite history, in our history, if you're a believer in Jesus, the key phrase, I have heard the cry, I will bring them out of Egypt, the place where they are in bondage, because they are held in this place and they cannot get out of, they're in chains to their slavery, and I am going to do something about it. This is central to understanding who God is and how he works. The story here begins with slavery, and God says, I have heard the cry, I am going to do something about their oppression. 
And when we talk about personal and corporate sin, how it affects our lives, how it brings shame, how it destroys all that we are in relationships around us that we can't even function in a way that we see, can't see the world without a sin lens over it. God says, I need to come and break those chains and I need to set you free so that you can actually live in the world the way I call you to live in the world. This is the gospel. This is good news. We are just like these people. We are in bondage to slavery and sin and God comes to set us free. It is beautiful. And we talk about this, you cannot confuse Egypt with Arabs. This is not racism. Egypt becomes a metaphor that Scripture uses to symbolize a kingdom opposed to God's kingdom. What happened to God's people of this harsh treatment in this place. And if you want to understand Egypt's role and what God is doing, you have to get the big idea of anti-kingdom and how big that is and how it affects the world around us. How we are, were slaves to sin. We could not get away on our own. We had to be redeemed out of it. How we are a people who have cried out and God has heard our cry and he's come and rescued us. The reason we use words like systemic when it comes to sin is systemic is more than one person on another. It's more than just Cain and Abel. I mean, sin can include one person on another, but it's now, it's this whole system. It's this whole culture that's opposed to the way of the kingdom of God. You know any culture like that today in the world? I think we live in the midst of one. We really do. And sometimes we don't see it because we're so ingrained in the midst of it. This kingdom oppresses and dehumanizes and makes slaves of another. Again, when you see this in the scriptures later in Jesus' day, we're referring to Egypt. It's referring to this whole system opposed to the way of the kingdom of God. Egypt is a picture of what happens when sin is embedded in society and most people don't even see it. It's beyond one person or two people, beyond a tribe, maybe even beyond an entire nation. It's an organized structure that doesn't value human life or the reality of the kingdom of God or the good news of the gospel. Egypt becomes, for the Jews, it is a geographical place where they were held in slavery, but later it's used as a metaphor for all of us in all of our lives. It's a picture of every person on the planet is born into sin. This nature pulls us in the exact opposite direction that God wants us to go in his kingdom. When the Israelites were born, yes, they were born physically into slavery, but they were also spiritual slaves to this thing called sin. This is why Egypt works on so many levels. We are born into sin. We have a sin nature that naturally wants to rebel. You may not think that's true, but anybody in here have kids? Okay, what happens when your kids hit two? What's their favorite words? And? Exactly. No, see, I, there's no, nothing on the prompter telling you this, right? No, you know, no in mind. And even when kids can't speak, before they're old enough to say no in mind, when you don't give them what they want, they scream and they wail and they cry out because you have violated their will. How dare you? I mean, they would take you out. What they don't lack is motive. They lack size and power. I'm sure when all your kids hit teenagers and you say, don't do that, they're like, oh, yes, you're so smart, mother and father. I just know everything that you say is so good. No, because we all naturally want to rebel. Sin is ingrained in who we are. And it's hard for me to give you the whole big Exodus story because of time constraints, so you're going to get it over the next couple weeks. But what I want you to understand today is the beginning of this, that God always hears the cry. The cry is what inaugurates this redemptive history because from here, the rest of the scriptures come to be written. In the scriptures, when people cry out, things happen. Sometimes we cry out, we don't even know we're doing it. We, maybe personally in your life, you might have like three or four big moments. And, and they kind of come down to things like, I hit bottom and I called out to God. Uh, I was lost or my life was unmanageable and I finally surrendered. It's like much of our own spiritual life begins in hardship. 
begins when we cannot see the way out. And I see that as God's blessing for allowing hard things to come into our lives. Because when we cry out, we actually realize God is listening. That God actually draws us into situations where we would then actually listen to him. And I think we know in the end when we cry out, something happens. God comes to Moses and he's like, they're crying. I hear, let's go do something about it. And Moses is like, I don't know. I don't talk too good. I stutter. And he's like, great, get your brother, let's go. Too often when God comes to us and he calls us, we're like, oh, no, 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 God. I can't, I don't speak too good. I don't know what I can do. God's like, let's go. We're supposed to do something. You're going to be a blessing to the world. No, no, no. I want to huddle up with my family, my friends who are just like me and not really talk to you about anybody who doesn't already know you because that's comfortable. God's like, no, you're going to be a blessing to the world. You're going to go out. It's going to be amazing. You're like, no. And God keeps trying to send us out because God always hears the cry. Centuries later, Jesus is walking uh, on all these places throughout Israel. And Mark 10, uh, 48 and 49, this blind guy cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. What does Jesus do? He stops, he listens, he hears, he heals this guy. There's a woman who's a Canaanite, and this is somebody that no Jew would touch at the time. Matthew 10, uh, 15, 22, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus do? He stops, he listens, he hears the cry, he does something about it. There's a lot of commentators who say it's like Jesus is leading a brand new exodus, a brand new understanding to bring us out of oppression and darkness and bondage. Again, it's very beautiful what Jesus does in the scriptures. He always hears the cry. And sometimes we are too often to people who say, oh yeah, Jesus heard my cry, and then we think that's all that there is. We become so self-centered and so self-focused that we think God saved us because we're so wonderful that God couldn't live eternity without us. Really? God lacks nothing in his character that is any deficiency whatsoever. God loves us because he is good. God creates us because he is good. God redeems us because he is good. Not because he needs somebody to love him or be friends with him. God has perfect relationship in the Trinity within himself. He does not need us like that. We need him. And God comes and rescues us. Central to understanding God is knowing he hears the cry. And if we have been people who have cried out and God has heard our cry, we're supposed to be people that hear the cry around us as well. Do you know that there are 2,103 verses in the Bible about the poor, the needy, and the oppressed? Do you think just maybe that might be important to him? That's sarcasm, if you didn't know. And I'd like to make kind of an observation here. Maybe this is why religion or Christianity seems so irrelevant to people in our world today. Because we can't see past the systemic sin that we sit in within the midst of our culture. Maybe Christianity seems irrelevant because too many Christians are not living out the gospel. That we have closed our ears to the cry and God is calling us to hear the cry around us. To go out and to live out the gospel because we've heard the cry. When we reduce the message of Jesus to, oh, it's just me and Jesus and I repented. We miss the idea that Jesus is leading us to go out to make a new and better world with him. That we're supposed to be his blessing to the world because he has first blessed us. We are, when we're not hearing the cry of the oppressed, we are, when we're unaware of systemic injustice, there's something wrong with our hearing. So we must ask ourselves, you know, are we part of a system that feeds the machine that oppresses people around us? And these are hard questions, and I don't have all the answers for you today, okay? So don't think I'm just going to be like, here, one, two, three, this is what you do. I'm not, but we have to ask ourselves and have the guts to ask ourselves in the midst of our communities, how are we adding to it? Because sometimes it's really hard to listen to what Jesus says. 
When, when we even talk about the poor today, that's so hard for us as Americans to even understand. Because do we even know anybody who's poor? I mean, even poor and homeless people in America aren't really that poor. Like sometimes we think poor is, I couldn't afford Starbucks today. Or I couldn't afford Starbucks this week or, or this month. I sometimes, and I, and I know other people who do this, I complain about you know being poor as I pour out my, pull out my iPhone and I set my DVR at home to record some meaningless sci-fi show about blue police call boxes and doctors. Right? And I'm like, oh, some of you got that. That's okay. I, I have other friends who are like really, and they'll like pull out their phones and be like, I'm so poor as they pull out their phone and set the DVR to record some meaningless football game. Or something like that. Oh, man, hitting close to home apparently, huh? Guys, the gospel is about saving ourselves, yes. But it's also practical where we seek out the oppressed. We stop being part of the problem. We bring freedom wherever we are because God has first brought freedom to us. And helping the poor isn't just about throwing money at a situation and a problem. It's stepping back and you take a larger look at this and we say what caused us in the first place. And then about stepping into the hurt and the pain and at times bringing relief physically, but also spiritually. It's not easy. It's not easy. But I think if and when we hear those cries, it'll change us to ask where God wants us as a people to begin to make a difference. Let me just quote Jesus, and not me, because Jesus is great. Uh, Luke four eighteen and 19. Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's the word gospel, the good news about who he is. The good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is about physical and spiritual suffering hand in hand. I mean, one of the big things Jesus talks about here is if you are in a place and you have guilt and shame and it's gone to depression and anger and you are wanting to cause violence and murder against yourself or somebody else, Jesus says, I have come to set you free. I have come to release you from your oppression. I have come to take all that stuff that you feel like you want to hide inside and keep from everybody from seeing. And I am the one who will step in and rescue and redeem and call you home and back into relationship with me. That's what he's doing. But he's also talking about the physical need as well. They go hand in hand. We as God's people are meant to proclaim freedom in both of those ways. And in our culture, again, I sometimes think it's really hard to figure out what that looks like. I think when we hear the cry, we are with God and what he's doing in the world because we hear broken people. I think we cease to judge one another so much and start to pray more. We'll begin to extend ourselves more to other people. I think we understand the gospel. Our hearts are broken by poverty and oppression both because it has to be both. Then we start to ask ourselves questions which are really hard like, you know, where do my clothes come from? Where does my furniture come from? Where does my stuff come from? Because God hears the cry. And if people are crying out, we go there and help. Now, what's amazing, which we'll talk about next week, is God calls us to be his priests in the world, his ambassadors. He has sent us to go out and live on his mission. And I don't know anything that made me make God smile more than his people actually living this way in the world. Maybe you sit here today and you think there is something element really needs to be doing. Great. Get in a gospel community. Talk to them about that. Then talk to us about it, and we will help make that happen. But you cannot be someone who just says, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this, and you're never involved in it. Too often people do that in churches. They show up and go, oh, your church should be doing this and this and this and this. Do you want to help? Nope. Okay. If, you, if you feel the, the pull and the call in your heart, 
You need to be a part of it by first being in a community of other believers and then by getting that community excited about it and then going out and doing something about it locally, globally, seeking Jesus, serving others, doing something in our lives to hear the cry because our cry has first been heard. Egypt, rescue and redemption from sin and oppression. And this task is going to be impossible if you don't know Jesus yourself. We cannot join God in the liberation of others if we ourselves have not been liberated. And so today, first and foremost, if you don't know Jesus, I invite you to cry out to him, to surrender your entire life to who he is, and he will rescue and renew and redeem you. My gospel statement again for this week, which I said at the very beginning, is the gospel is the good news that God has established his kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we as restored citizens live in a present and tangible way that helps bring this kingdom to earth. So I want you guys to repeat that with me. Ready? Three, two, one. The gospel... the gospel god has rescued god has redeemed god has restored god has loved us it's so funny i'm michael lastic one of the guys that works here uh, we just started redemption groups this week and he goes it's so funny that this is where we you end up this week and we just start redemption groups which is all about the idea of god rescuing us out of our oppression and our sin and our shame and stuff like that so who knew uh, god you know i guess right because he's sovereign and he works all things out how it needs to work out so guys i gotta tell you God is gracious and God is good. He has called us into his family. He has set us on mission. He has called us to be a part of what he is doing in the world. And that should be really exciting. God doesn't save us to sit back and, and look for our own comfort. God sends us out to be a blessing in the world. This is one of the reasons we talk about community each week. It's where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. We do not pass it throughout the room. You actually have to get up and take it because it's a response to what he's doing in our hearts and in our lives. And when we understand what God did here to rescue and redeem us, I think it should cause us to see the world differently as well. Or we can look out and say, man, God brought me out of my own oppression and my own depression and my own shame. He has restored me to a relationship with him because he is good. And that's what happens when we remember what he did on the cross to rescue and save us. And we go out and live that out in people's lives around us. The man's going to come up, as they do. Uh, I'm going to invite you, if you need prayer, there are going to be some deacons in the back. And if you're in a place today where you want to cry out to Jesus, they would love to pray with you about that. Like if you have been walking through some things in your life and you feel like God hasn't heard your cry or God doesn't care about those things, we invite you, we invite you today to cry out to who he is and they would love to pray with you about that and what that means so that your life can be found in him because our lives will have no meaning and make no sense until they are truly found in who he is. Uh, There's offering boxes by all the doors. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship, so you have the opportunity every week. We do not pass the plate. Uh, Part of what Element does when people give is we actually, the first 10% that anybody gives to us, we set aside in a fund. That goes to church planting and world relief. And we want to go out because we want to make a difference and help people in the world. So when you give to us, Element really, we, we give back out around us because we believe that God has called us to give as well. So everything that we do wants to be centered around the idea of the gospel, the good news of what God is doing and continues to do. There's food out.
outside, grab something to eat, you know, grab some sermon notes, talk to some other people about some of the questions in there, about what it means in your, play, in your life where you have cried out and where God has heard and God has listened and God has brought you back in. And then how you in your life can also hear the cry as well. Because God calls us to be a people who live in the good news that we hear the cry of what's happening around us because our God is good. Let's pray. Thought of this morning. I ask that you would remind us day by day, especially going through this series, of your grace and your goodness. How you are a God who has heard our cry in the midst of our own personal suffering and affliction. And God, sometimes in American culture that, that can be physically but most of the time for us, it ends up being in a way where we're such at the whim of an entire culture that tries so hard to run in the opposite direction of you. And we find ourselves caught up in the midst of that, thinking that we know how to do everything in our lives better than you have called us to. And so we become a lot like Adam. We tell ourselves what is right and wrong rather than listening to you and what you have said. And so today I ask that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and our spirits that we would be a people who begin to listen more closely day by day to you. That you have proclaimed freedom to us as an oppressed people. But you have also called us to go out and proclaim that same freedom to the world around us by telling and bringing about and being the good news. Teach us to live out your grace and your goodness by being that blessing you call us to, to be your hands and feet to this world. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.